0: Peter Chapman, the author of many books, including Out of Time, 1966 and the end of Old Fashioned Britain. The cover is superb. You've got what I imagine is you at the top in a car and then people going for a kickabout on the back cover at the bottom. Was it a happy experience digging up all these memories and going for memoir rather than um, having a fourth book of straight biography or history?
1: Um, it was. I enjoyed it. And um, it made me realise what a good and interesting year 66 was for other reasons than football. That picture that you talk of of the people walking out on the pitch on a Saturday, uh, Sunday probably, I believe is Hackney, Bar- Hackney Marshes. It looks like Hackney
0: Marshes, up, yes.
1: Part of all our cultures, if you come from north and bordering east London. Just seeing the amount of, the, you know, just reading, going back and looking at it and seeing... All the things you were involved with without knowing you were at the time, you know, first girlfriend, the pill coming in, East End girlfriend, still fairly conservative about things, not least because of the fear of pregnancy, the pill coming in, loosening things up, being able to widen your experience as a result of that. There was the great debate, which had begun, I think, just before the World Cup of 66 introduction of the bill in the commons to liberalise homosexuality, which was central to our lives in many ways, The living just up the road from the late playwright Joe Orton. Amazing.
0: I love that. And you, you pull back and reveal, you kind of drop it in in the first half of the book, that there's, there are two guys who live together and nothing is yeah. said because that was the way. And then towards the end, someone goes, Hey, your mate, your neighbour's got a play on. Joe Orton, prick yeah. up your ears, loot. Uh, Entertaining, Mrs. Sloan.
1: Incredible. It, it was Luke, that first one, um, or oh, the first one I saw at the Criterion Theatre. I can remember it very well. Orton would walk past us. I never had a word with him, but people didn't necessarily speak to their neighbours. Um, you know, we kept ourselves to ourselves, and it was uh, that, uh, that's almost an autenest voice or an attempt of at one anyone. Anyway. <laughs> um, I,
0: I love doing old-fashioned one. voices. Joe Orton, his debut play. Loot is on now, The Criterion. Um, they should clutch. bring that back.
1: Damn good play. And a bit, bit risky.
0: They were clutching their pearls. Sorry, go <laughs> on. Well,
1: I'm, in 1962, I got up and getting ready to go to school, and my mum said to me, she said, oh, she said I have to tell you this, but the men down the road, um, they've gone to jail. I said, What? She explained who she was talking about, because there were people in the street, you know, that classic Islington Street at the time who, you know, my granddad would say, oh, they're on their holidays at the moment. It was only when I was about eight or nine. I thought, it's funny, why are these people taking holidays in November? And it would be, you know, some fat member of a family down the road and been involved in some kind of thing, and they were in prison. I imagine his pleasure. Now, that when, when my mum said that, I'm thinking again of these old families down the street who might have had, you know gone on their holidays occasionally at Her Majesty's pleasure, But then she said it was these two guys. And what's happened? What's happened? something to do with library books? She said, and I do remember as well, normally we got the Daily Mirror, but they were all sold out that day at the local Polish newsagent, And they um, never did get to see the Mirror of that day, then found out as time went on what had happened. They'd been defacing library books and that sort of disenchanted writer, or at least his his, um, boyfriend, Ken Halliwell, was disenchanted. But um, yeah, when Orton came out, I, he, he said afterwards, I never spoke to him. Um, he was a neighbour, uh, five, six doors away. You'd see him regularly. And I, in retrospect, I had like Satchel over their shoulder. It was probably the one full of library books that they were bringing home from Essex Road Library or Hollywa- Holloway Road Library uh, to deface or whatever. Yeah, think- but he said it gave, gave him a detachment and he was able to detach from things he knew. And he was able then to write, works of fiction, and prison did him well, as it were. And, uh, but eventually, of course, that sort of terrible day coming home from work, or rather dramatic day coming home from work in Islington Town Hall, where not much in the way of drama went on, one of my first jobs, and there were, there were the police cars, the ambulances outside, and um, Joe Orton uh, had been killed. Mm-hmm. You know, with things like you know, the debate about homosexuality, liberalisation and things like this. The, the, forcing... the cessation
0: of capital punishment as well.
1: Yes, that was all in the mix, and all of it was confronting values that, shall we say, in a classically working background um, area, I I avoid using working class because my parents would have never used the term, the, uh, an area where people were mainly a working background, you didn't confront such issues as this. Capital punishment was taken for granted. That's what you did. Somebody killed somebody, they had to die. And homosexuality, oh, well, that was weird. Oh, what's happening here? Oh. And, you know, suddenly people saying, well, you know, fascinating, difficult times in many ways, getting to grips with these things, the values that you've been brought up with all around you, being made to think, change them. It was all happening around that year of 66.
0: Meanwhile, if you had a tenner, you could move to Australia. Were you ever tempted?
1: No, I wasn't. I heard that Australia was a little bit, what can we say? I mean, Australia was not, well, but around the year 2000, wasn't it? They they marked their centenary then, and then everybody was going to Australia. We were never quite in the desperate position of a lot of people being without work or, you know, having being a, a skilled Uh, gas fitter or something, just being chucked out of work and and then making off for Australia. Uh, It never fitted my need or profile, I felt. I've yet to go to Australia. I miss not having been there. Um, But no, I was never tempted by that. I I remember when I worked at The Guardian in the 80s, somebody, a colleague there, uh, when i just come back from Mexico City, a colleague was saying, well, New Zealand seems to be the flavour of the month now. I, I've not been to New Zealand either. By here, it's a very nice place, beautiful place. But I think there is this thing, isn't there, that um, wherever you go in the world, I've been lucky to you know, go to certain paradises, you know, Bali, Grenada, various... But, and when you get there, it isn't necessarily a paradise. You have to sort of set about making your way. When I was in Grenada, for example, 1983 just after the Americans had invaded. I was going back to London after a very interesting um week there, I think it was. And on a beach there, you know, so I, I had a dip, uh, you know, went and took advantage of the beaches. It's been a very busy week. And um there were some local kids playing around, you know, kicking a ball around, whatever. And one of them said, Ah, take me back you know, I wanna to go to Britain. And it was I think it was December. I said, Well what do you want to go what do you want to go there for? The fact is, you know, you People have to make their way wherever they go. And there's no paradise. There is no paradise. There is no easy route. And um, I never saw the £10 passage as being the one for me. In fact, I knew people who would taken the opportunity for the £10 passage and then had come back again two or three years later. Stratford, East London, you know, with with fairly normal jobs. It didn't work for everybody. And it could be tough for those who did make it.
0: Well, are you saying that Norwood and... Croydon and not Paradise I wouldn't
1: dare say that given that I live I sort of live right next to Norwood and uh, Croydon is down the road when I was living on the Isle of Dogs just before it became um, uh, the regeneration yeah my brother lived very
0: nearby for a bit, lived in Bermondsey
1: Bermondsey. Right now, Bermondsey, you know, tough area. Well, it was. Tommy Steele came from there and all this kind of thing. Now it's not particularly tough. But the guy that I used to, I used to go and do car maintenance classes on the Isle of Dogs, pretending I might be able to do something under uh, old Morris Thousand. But when I couldn't do it, I used to deliver it to a guy called Phil up the road. I was only around there the other day, around the East India Dock Road, looking for the place where called the midwife was, uh, oh, you know, where yeah, the old yeah. midwife just off the East India Dock Road. And when I found it, I realized I was right next to Phil's old garage. Phil has moved on. Fairly, very few facilities, tools and all the rest of it. And Phil came from, I'm going to say, somewhere like Antigua. And bleak nights in October, November, rain, puddles everywhere. You know, I said to him, you know, why did Phil, is this... Is this what you want? He said, believe me. He said, yeah, I want work. And this, you know, I've got work here and that's what makes it enjoyable. Um, it's a fairly trite thing to say now because everybody realises that people have, tra- many people realise it. They've travelled. Alan de Botton, he says, wherever you go, to whichever paradise you go to, the problem is you take yourself with you. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, if, if paradise is in your head, then that's great. And that can be in Croydon, Norwood or... or um, Watford, yeah. Grenada or Barnet.
0: That's the title of the next book, Grenada or Barnet. Um, I'm conscious that we're halfway through the second half and we haven't really mentioned football, but that is very much the point because for every page of football in Out of Time, there's four pages of memoir and anecdote and I'm more interested in that, quite frankly. This does go out on the 30th of July, 2021. 55 years ago on this date was the World Cup final. I do laugh... Because there are so many what-ifs. What if Nobby Styles hadn't been able to play against Argentina? What if the referee hadn't sent off Rattan for effectively being Argentinian? It's like driving while black, like playing football while Argentinian. What would have happened yep. if Greaves had got back in the team for the semi-final yeah. or the final? Uh, what would have yep. happened if the match hadn't been switched from Goodison Park to Wembley? What would have happened if Pele hadn't been kicked out of the World Cup? What if the selectors had maintained control over the team and worse, said that Nobby Stars couldn't play and thus Alf Ramsey would have resigned mid-tournament, much like the Spanish coach the other year? There are so many what-ifs. And yet, with 55 years in England, we've lived as way lads, lads, lads. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. That's all, all it the takes. the have to come together, don't they? The fates, they all have to come together in the right unity.
0: Because it could have happened just the other week. Were you watching the Euro final? against italy
1: yes indeed yeah donna roma yeah good keeper um i mean i, I find it quite funny these days great keeper yeah all in fact um, a lot of keepers on the show are great it's a different different game is it johnny yo know, i didn't have to take goal kicks even when i was playing for Leighton Orion juniors i didn't have a very strong kick i get you know, the uh, center half to take it and now of course you have to be i think what was it edwin van der Sar those few years ago was was a good enough player outfield player to be a professional it's a different kind of goal, goalkeeping now. But um, what were you going to say about the what-ifs to do the European Championship? Well, or were you?
0: if Chiesa had kept on the pitch, we wouldn't have had the penalties, I think, because Ke- the Italy were coming at us and at us. Chiesa had to be withdrawn, and then it was yeah. obviously all hands to penalties. And it was almost yeah. inevitable. Donnarumma, twelve. there's no way anything's yeah. getting past him, especially by three very inexperienced or two very inexperienced kickers. But having yeah. played football at some level, you played at non-league level for Bedford Town under Ron Burgess for Leighton Orient youth when Dave Sexton was there, which must have been a hell of a time. Right. The, the, the modern day kind of football, there's far too much pressure. You can't have fun and you can't sign autographs for kids at half time.
1: <laughs> no, there was a five minute. Yeah, do you remember the old days of the five-minute kickabout before the game?
0: So I'm very young.
1: That, uh, well, there we are. You jump on, uh, and there, there's signs up now at the Emirates or there were at Ivory saying, you know, it's a criminal offence to go running on the field. But that was the only way I could get to the likes of Manchester United. Uh, you couldn't get them outside the ground because there was dads and all this getting in the way and all that kind of thing. And, yeah, you'd run on. I, and Rangers, Glasgow Rangers, then the top team, back in the 60s, earlier 60s,
0: uh-huh.
1: the team in Scotland. They'd come down and play a regular friendly with Arsenal. I ran around amongst them in the five minutes kickabout before their game started. And then I got off the pitch and I realised there was one I hadn't got, Harry Davis, the centre-half. So I ran on at half-time, you know, as they came out at half-time. Well, there's no kickabout then. And the referee actually held the game up for a minute or so while I was getting back in my, um, back in my seat. Those those again were were quite different days. You mentioned the unsalubrious nature of King's Cross. Changed a lot now, of course. The Guardian is there, just on the canal. Yeah. Up um, York. <laughs> Google. Yeah, yeah. Up, uh, up York Way, the, towards the Caledonian Road, and what a hard area that was. But an area of um, footpads and pickpockets and all the rest of it. I remember it was a place where I got Gordon Banks' autograph. Leicester City didn't used to stay at a hotel overnight in London. They'd come down, Leicester not being that much of a train ride away and have lunch in the Midland Hotel at King's Cross. And I used to stand outside doing my best to avoid the kids, 18-year-old, who you know, should have known better than collecting autographs, particularly as a, as something which preoccupied them much at the weekend, trying to avoid them. They'd try and beat up younger kids and everything. And then banks suddenly emerged, you know, walking around for just a post prandial walk before he had to go off to Highbury, I think it was, play Arsenal. And I just happened to see him Stuffed my book under his um, under his nose and he signed it. And uh, great pleasure when I was doing a goalkeeper's history of Britain. I wanted to interview about 70 goalkeepers at the start of it. Then I realized oh, it was going to turn into a series of interviews and other people's thoughts on goalkeepers when I felt I knew or had a view on most of them. But Gordon Banks was, uh, I think I made a list of four or five in the end to talk to. And Gordon Banks was one of them. And one evening while I was doing the night shift, the late shift at the FT, Financial Times, somewhere around nine, nine o'clock, ten, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, I'd arranged to, um, to speak with um, Gordon Banks, gave him a call at his home and had an hour-long chat with him that night. It was a great privilege. And I brought up that day, actually, the day that I'd seen him at Highbury. And, it was, and Banks was still establishing himself. Uh, I'm not sure if he'd got into the England team. Uh, But he had a reputation, and Bob Wilson bears this out in in his biography uh, of goalkeepers, that Gordon was a bit flash, not in the traditional British style of spectacular but safe, but spectacular and not always safe. And he made this most stupendous save. He must have taken off and was five feet horizontal to the ground, plucked the ball out of the air. But he had so far to come down as he landed his elbow, dropped his elbow in the goal mouth, and it just trickled over the line. But it was wonderful watching him go up into that dive and catch the ball. Over the years, it, he got much better. I, I had the nerve I, with the, you know, reading Bob Wilson's book about goalkeepers beforehand. When he said, "Oh, Gordon could be a bit flash," well, it's all very well for Bob to say it. Bob Wilson, lovely guy, um, used to meet him a lot when I was covering matches of at course, Highbury Yeah, he yeah.
0: was the he was one, the anchor.
1: He was the anchor, and one day, and and you know, when he was goalkeeping coach and everything, and mm. I'd sit with him. You know, he'd be at the games or something, and at halftime, time, we'd sit and chat because he'd, he'd said very nice things about my um, Goalkeeper's History of Britain book. But what is one thing to Bob Wilson to say that? Another thing to I said, Yeah, but Gordon, you were a little bit flash when you were sort of younger, weren't you? And there was this moment of five seconds, <laughs> really silence. And he said, No, 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 I've always, you know, I've always used my feet. I've always, you know, positioning has been my game. And I realised it was one of those moments that you didn't argue any further. You still wanted 20 minutes to talk to the guy. He was, you know, the best goalkeeper I'd ever seen. And I wasn't going to start arguing with him no. uh, about it. Fair
0: um, into that.
1: A, bit like, a bit like, let me say, oh, here we are, this is tangential. Are we still in Leicestershire when I say this? Market Harbour. I went up when I was working in television to Gartry Prison there to interview Reg Crow. And uh, it was 20 years since the Crows had been in prison and the family was campaigning, or rather asking, well, since they'd done two-thirds of their 30-year sentences oh. and the time for have uh, let out on good behaviour. This was before because the film,
0: it, before the Kemp Brothers film.
1: Yeah, it was, it was, yeah. And, uh, and I was working for a late-night Friday thrash a tabloid TV program called Central TV Live, mm. and after eight weeks of applying, I finally got into a Guy high security prison. And Reg Cray, you know, said, Oh, you know, ask me whatever you want. And then, what was it? We got on to we talking a lot about things, and um, we got onto the subject of Ronnie because so you must go and visit Ronnie. Ronnie, Ronnie was involved, so we got on the subject of homosexuality and um. You know the things that I'm talking about in my book. There, you know the change of things around sixty six, sixty seven. And I said, "Well, well it must have been, you know, in the East End of London. You know, homosexuality wasn't really a vote winner. And um, but so it probably Ronnie was able to, shall we say, live his life as he did purely because he was Ronnie." And um, I can't quite remember the flow of conversation at that point. I think it was becoming uneasy. And then Reg, Reg Cray looked at me and said, no, you've got it wrong. Very nice people in the East End of London. Always very tolerant of such things. And I'd spent a lot of time around Leighton and, and all that. And uh, Stratford, and my first girlfriend was from Stratford. And I didn't agree with her. I said, oh, I don't really agree with you, Reg. And, and then I suddenly realised halfway through that sentence, yeah, I'm arguably Reg Craying. Um, maybe it's not the thing to do. Actually, he was very tolerant, but it did make me stop. Pause for thought.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: Um, Anyway, and I pursued his argument that, yes, I should go and visit Ronnie. It had taken me eight weeks to get into Gartory Prison because of the security and everything, high security. Ronnie in Broadmoor, he said, well, I called up reception next week and said, I'd like to, could I check, please, how you go about arranging a visit for an inmate? They said, which which one's that? And I said, "It's Ronald Craig. And they put me through to some uh, phone number and uh, a phone, uh, an extension somewhere, a bloke in what sounded like an echoey corridor answered it. I said, hello, I'm trying to find out what the process is to arrange to come into Broadmoor and uh, see one of um, one of the inmates. He said, who's that? And I said, well, Ron Cray He said, hang on a moment. He shouted down the corridor. <laughs> Ron, Ron Cray. Cray, no, cray, wrong cray. I've got a bloke here. I'd already said I was from Central Television. Got a bloke here from Central Television wants to come and visit. You know, garble, garble in the background. And next Tuesday, all we'll right for you? Yeah, quite literal quite literally like that. But anyway, well, I've strayed off the subject. I feel I'm in the '60s still, Johnny. But I'm wandering. Hey, Just guide me on the
0: path. I, I, well, we've got to wrap up very soon, which is quite annoying. This is the kind of chat that I would love to have in a real football library. So you do get your laminated football library card. You can choose from any of your colleagues. You can have Bob Wilson. You can have Gordon Banks. You could have the great Brian Glanville, who is 90 in September.
1: Yep.
0: Who do you want on your library card?
1: On my library card? Yeah. Well, I, I was very privileged to work with Brian in Mexico in 86 and times around then. Oh, that you'll throw them. There must be any number. Bob Wilson would be lovely to sit and chat too. If my French, I'd have to improve my French. What about Albert, Albert Camus?
0: Ooh, I think, I yes, think of course, that... a fellow goalkeeper, famously. Yeah,
1: famously played didn't he for? Well, I was going to say play for Algeria. Was it Algeria?
0: I it. Oh no, it was the FLN. I learnt about this the other day. Um...
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't think he played for the FLN. I think he because um, because he was. Um, so-called pied noir, you know, I think he was a French background, so he was probably destined to go, to get out of Algeria, but I think he played at the University of Algiers or something. like. My father was stationed in Algiers in the the war, never got to meet Camus, of course, but I think probably being a bit pretentious, um, Camus would be nice to talk to and compare notes, and Bob Wilson actually quoted him in his book and said, um, you know, Camus probably stretched it a bit. But goalkeeping, goalkeeping is like life. Um, the ball never comes at you the same way twice. Good. Um, which is uh, something worth discussing around that. It is probably quite true.
0: I have a, a very high bar for footballers' memoirs. Buster Tutt is there. Graham Tutt played for Charlton before uh, yeah. injury took him around the world. Um, Neville Southall's books are quite unbelievable. And Bruce Grobelaar. I,
1: I, I, well. I want to. Yeah, never. never I never met him, but it, what a character!
0: Yeah. Well, I could put you in touch with Daniel Story, who uh, helped him with his second book, Mind Games, which is in the Football Library. This book, Out of Time, 1966, and the end of old-fashioned Britain, I guess, uh, would be social history. So it would go with a lot of Jonathan Wilson's book, including his one, The Outsider. I don't know if you've read that one about goalkeepers. I
1: certainly have. I certainly have. Yeah. I certainly have yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a super duper book. Very good on Lev Yashin, whom you are not so keen on.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think Lev probably, we all got a bit carried away with, with, with Lev. And Gordon Bank, uh, Banks, I say Lev you know, mm. as if I, you know, I have dinner with him. And uh, I had dinner with him, I didn't. I remember Gordon Banks being very upset um, after the World Cup in 66 that, that Yashin was made goalkeeper of the tournament. Yeah. And, you know, Lev could make his mistakes. I think he just caught... My argument is that he... You know, a bit like Bert Troutman. Bert Trautman's a great goalkeeper. But, you know, we were looking for somebody after the Second World War, the good German. We wanted the good German. We wanted to know that we could get on with these people uh, rather than just hate them. And at the same time, we were looking for the good Russian. Uh, or oh, not the same time. A little bit later, we were looking for the good Russian. And Lev, while being a great... I mean, I've seen... I remember the 1958 World Cup Um, The first one they really broadcast on television, uh, live. And uh, Lev kicking up an awful fuss and throwing his cap at the referee and all this because a penalty had been awarded against him, uh, which I think Tom Finney came up and stroked into the net. And Lev was still jumping around, you know, acting like some kind of circus performer. Great goalkeeper, but um, I, I think we allowed our emotions to get a little bit out of control on that. And after a while, when you get critical mass... People who haven't even seen the likes of Lev Yashin, they say, "Oh yeah, yeah a great keeper, a great keeper, um, uh, and all that." I think the Hungarian goalkeeper was probably very good. It's um, 1953. Mm-hmm.
0: They only lost one game, the World Cup final. He must have been pretty good.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, then Pushkas was injured. Also.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, but yeah, Lev, yeah, must fine enough. But I just, I thought it was time for a bit of revisionism there, actually. And um, I, yeah, good. But I do think. I do think Gordon Banks played better than him in the nineteen sixty six series, and indeed, you know, when he went, Gordon Banks went on to nineteen seventy. We all saw what he could do. Yes, um, you know, in the safe in Guadalajara, save in Guadalajara, and um, once when working with ITV Sport there, and Graham, you know, Kevin Keegan was over there interviewing. Something that was meant to be helping him doing some research for him. I went down the other end and rehearsed that save as best I could, and um, it was absolutely phenomenal. I think the key to it was that he knew how. You know, that bounce that Pelé had put on the ball perfectly, just the bounce in front of the goalkeeper's wrist. Banks had just managed to twist himself that little bit backwards and catch the ball on the rise and just push it over the top. Um, uh, yeah, Lev was fine enough, but, but um, I, I think we just lost our sense of proportion because he was a Russian and we all wanted to like.
0: Very interesting. And your opinion is as valid as Jonathan Wilson's, although yours is right. Did you know that you can get out of time 1966 and the end of old fashioned Britain for four fifty three, four pounds fifty three? That's new currency, not old money, on Kindle. Uh, if you want a used copy, you can get it for as cheap as four pounds and I I now have this physical copy which goes onto the shelves of the football library. Uh, I'm going to finish. So good about the mix between players and fans. You actually say Roger Hunt and... um, Who was the other one? Was it Peter Osgood? Good with kids. That seems to be important for you, and I think that's going to come back round.
1: Brian Clough. Brian Clough.
0: Yes, 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 yes. yes. Page 52 of your book. You are um, getting a set of autographs Outside Upton Park. Um.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, this was an Easter. Coming towards the end of the season, I wanted to get exotic and not just turn up. At Highbury, you know, the teams trained, generally speaking, at the grounds in those days. And I'd been to White Hart Lane and all that on days when they weren't training at Chesson. Arsenal, Highbury, when they weren't training at London Coning. And I thought I'd go to West Ham. And I went along with a guy who went on to be to play for Fulham he was um, uh, the best footballer in our year Jimmy Dunkley I don't think he made it professionally but I said I was going to go along and West Ham and Jude he said I'll come along I'll come you know, the West Ham the kids were very nice um, I, I didn't expect kids from the East End to be very nice I was expecting a few hard nuts and all the rest of it and um, Bobby Moore came out I still look at it every so often now beautifully signed A4 picture of him beautifully written as well best wishes Bobby Moore and uh, when all the players had um, gone in to training, I thought they had anyway, and um, these 10 kids, you know, from around Green Street there, wandered over to me. And I thought, oh, fortunately I've got Jimmy with me. He was a tough guy uh, from the back of Highbury Stadium, which was a rough place to be in those days. And uh, I thought, I'm okay then. But this kid wandered over and said, here. Yeah. He said, um, let's have a look at your team photo. Now, sometimes, you know, you, you know, some the kid and then rip it out, you book and steal it. And he said, right, he said, you need to get that bloke over there. And I didn't see this bloke over there. I didn't recognise him, but I looked over and there was this young bloke standing around. He said, "Um, that's Jeff Hurst, our reserve left half. And there's his picture there. And he said, "Um, he does that every morning. All the players go in and he always hangs around for 10 minutes afterwards waiting for us, any of us that want his autograph. But we've all got it. Yeah, we've all got it time and again. And uh, he just stands there waiting. You know, He looks as if he's waiting for somebody. He looks as if he's waiting for something. But he's not. He's waiting. But anyway, why don't you go and get it signed? So, oh, thanks very much, mate. So I wandered over. I could virtually put my hand on the picture now. Wandered over. And he signed it. I looked at it and thought, oh, well, there we are. I've got one of the reserves. How nice that I'm near to completion of my team photo. And it's only years later, of course, that you... You realise then some significance in this. I might have missed him. I, I, couldn't, I didn't recognise him at the time. And years later, I spoke about it with Jeff Hurst. I said, how was it that you were reserve?" And he said, well, how did you make it into the forward line? And he said, well, at the time, you know, there I was in the midfield at West Ham. And uh, I had the likes of was it Martin Peter, mm-hmm. Bobby Moore to compete with and all the rest of it. And then one day, centre-forward, there's another bit of fate. Johnny Dick, who actually was a very difficult per scotsman difficult, difficult to get his autograph. Johnny Dick got injured, so Ron Greenwood said, why don't you play up front? You've got a decent left foot. And Johnny Dick never got back in the team again. But anyway, at the time, there was Jeff Hurst, just the reserve, and the kids said, go on, go and get him. He's always doing that. He's always, he just wants us to run. You know, he wants attention. But anyway, I, I never mentioned that to Jeff Hurst when I met him some years later. I wouldn't have, wouldn't have dared.
0: No, you never said to him, on the morning I scored his signature, I felt I had done him a favour. And in a way, he repaid you by scoring that hat-trick on this date, as this goes out, 55 years ago. I hope he'll get a call from Prince William today. Uh, And this great book, which messes, as I say, social history, memoir, geography, military history. And also, we didn't even mention where you start the book, Getting Out of Dunkirk. But that is a story... Um, but we're out of time to tell. How about that? Out of time, 1966 and the end of old-fashioned Britain. Get it on Kindle now. If you're listening today, £4.50, it's a good use of the price of a cup of coffee in an expensive Islington posh bar on Essex Road. Um, Peter, thanks so much.
1: Lovely to talk to you, Johnny. Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library! Shh!